Welcome to Centering Centers, a podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. I'm your host, Laura Becker, a faculty member and faculty fellow with ACERT, our Academic Center for Excellence in Research and Teaching at Hunter College, City University of New York. In each episode, I will be interviewing educational developers in a range of contexts as a way to contribute to the community of faculty developers by connecting us to one another and to the essential work we do. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode three of Centering Centers. Today's episode is entitled, A Sense of Service and a Sense of Generosity, which are words of wisdom from Dr. Matthew Willette, the Executive Director of the Center for Teaching Innovation at Cornell University. Matt was formerly at Wayne State University and also at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much for being my guest today on our um, podcast, Centering Centers, uh, and we're going to just jump into it. And the focus of this um podcast, as you know, is not really about more ideas for, you know, teaching and higher ed, but more about the journey and the experiences of those who do educational development. And obviously you have a lot of uh, experience in the pod network and in your position um, at Cornell. So we want to kind of tap into your knowledge and experiences a bit. So if you don't mind, could you start like back at the beginning? How did you wind up getting into this work? Is it something you even knew was like a thing? Or did this just kind of evolve? If you could take us back to that. Sure. I'm, I'm glad to give you a uh, sort of a retrospective look at what I, I at what I think of as my history and faculty development. Um, I actually was working at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and I was in a doctoral program and up until that point I had either been in student affairs and higher ed or I had done some work briefly as a social worker for a state agency in Vermont and um, to be quite honest I reached a crisis point in my dissertation work where I knew I couldn't continue working full-time in student affairs and make any progress on the dissertation <laughs> yeah and um, anyone who's worked in residential life or student affairs understands that I don't think <laughs> anything more than that it was just not going to happen so a friend of mine in my doctoral program who was a couple years ahead of me called me and said I have this assistantship open at the Center for Teaching I'd love for you to come uh, work with me. And um, that was the beginning. That was back in, uh, hard to believe, 1994. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very casual uh, network sort of thing where my friend at the time was uh, launching a diversity, equity, and inclusion project in the Center for Teaching. They'd gotten some um, in, internal funding from the Graduate okay. Student Professional Development Association to to create some resources for graduate students around teaching inclusively. Mm. And um, I want to just call out that Mary Dean Sorsonelli was the director yes. of the center. And, um, you know, I ended up um, loving the work. Um, it gave me a point of connection between my doctoral work, my lived experiences, the research that I was doing on my dissertation and also 
um, working in the academic affairs side of the house. So mm -hmm. most of us understand that in higher ed institutions, the power resides within the academic side of the house. That, that's, you know, th those are where the key stakeholders are. And if you're going to influence climate, culture, anything systemic, you really need to be working from that side of the house to make sustained mm -hmm. change. There's a lot of terrific stuff we were able to do in student affairs, very important colleagues, really vital con contributors. But I just sort of woke up one day and said, that's where the power is in, in this kind of organization. And I was very interested in multicultural organization development. So um, that led the assistantship, uh, led to an assistant director position, which led to an associate director position, which led to a director position, all at the same institution. And, um, you know, it's really wonderful to work with my colleagues there. There's many of them are still there. They're just a, a fantastic group of faculty. Mm -hmm. I got to do a lot of work that I was super interested in doing. And um, yeah, so that that's sort of how I came to the work. Pretty excellent. Yeah. Well, it's it's I think everyone so far I've talked to has the same experience. Um, and now that perhaps you and some of your cohort that have been in this role for a long time, um, you have paved or created more of a field, more of an understanding, maybe even people who are first graduating. Um, for example, I, I spoke with, um, I think it was Kylie Korsnak um, in an earlier interview, and she's like a recent PhD graduate, but had worked already in centers, and she knew that was what she wanted to do. So I'm just curious, you know, now that people might know more that this is a thing, or do you still see it as a bit incidental um, faculty who wind up doing a lot of um, creative teaching work and then kind of get pulled into it or people who come from different sort of sectors of a university, maybe they're assessment people, because I know there's still a lot of variety in um, the kinds of work that is done as well as the people's background um so what are your thoughts in terms of now let's say someone is looking to work as a as a center director or um what what would you tell them in terms of depending on what their background is well i um I, I love the way you sort of laid the groundwork, Laura. All, all roads lead to Rome in this. <laughs> you know, you really can start from many different disciplinary backgrounds. I, I think the critical attribute is a sense of service. The, the, mm. the best directors that I know or that I've worked with um, and, and what I appreciate most about my colleagues are the ones that lead with a sense of generosity and a desire to help other people be at their mm -hmm. best. Um, and that I think is the critical component. There's a great utility in any number of kinds of academic backgrounds. Um, I happen to come out of a school of ed um, with a focus in diversity, equity, and multicultural organization development. Impeccable timing for where the next couple of decades yes. go. So um, I don't think it's as much of the, the discipline anymore. And there there have been some efforts over the years to create either certificate programs or doctoral programs that might sort of accelerate people's readiness for these jobs. 
but that has um, had mixed success. And mm. uh, I think higher ed is still pretty traditional. And so coming out of a discipline actually serves you really well, whatever that discipline is. Yeah, um, I mean, that fits with what you said before about where where the where the the what's valorized you know if if we really still regard you know disciplinary expertise um you have that astrophysicist telling you about what they did in their teaching you're going to really listen as opposed to okay here's someone who talks about education but hasn't been also managing publishing and doing their teaching and all of that that's right the credibility yeah and as you know, from your own experience as a faculty member, the closer you are to that lived experience of the faculty member, the more likely you are to be persuasive, you know, to be able mm -hmm. to offer advice in a sort of a context and in a uh, vernacular that, that mm -hmm. that's helpful, that's most helpful. Yeah. Well, you were saying about, you know, it's more about a quality, a sort of a, a service mindset. Um, if you were to also say like, in terms of working with administrations, um, of course not yours, but in general. Um, theoretically. <laughs> theoretically, what kind of savvy could someone think about developing or what? where should they look? What should they be attending to in developing really powerful um, leadership skills to do the kind of work that you have to do as a center director? I love that question, Laura. I, mean, I, I think I would approach it in, at two or three levels. Um, I think you really need to always be a lifelong learner and consistently be developing your own awareness of what your strengths are and your skills and what's most important to you. So just a quick personal example. Yeah. Um, I work, I have a wonderful friend who uh, has characterized me as being at the DNA level team oriented <laughs> i just cannot get enough teams that's all i want to do is put everybody in a team she laughs at me because she says an awful lot of people can't stand teams and yeah. um, so i think understanding who you are at at your core and what your values mm. are is really a, a, a discovery process you're, that you're really never done with because as we move up um over time and move into new groups there are new challenges you know a new 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 situations present themselves so the so the other thing i think is being able to take perspectives different from your own um i've over the years i've i've had uh i've come to appreciate people who are more transactional than i am and more about mm. the deliverables um, and I'm completely opposite to that. <laughs> the relationship. I, mm -hmm. I, I want to build things organically. I want you to be as much a part of this conversation as I am. And, but I, but there's, uh, I've come to develop an appreciation for people who walk in and say, this is what I'm going to do. You'll have it by <laughs> Monday, you know, yeah. no discussion, no nothing, you know, just sort of, they've made their minds up and there's some, there's some utility to that. <laughs> it, especially in higher ed, sometimes you really need people like that. Um, yeah, I think the, the negotiation of um, these different demands. So how do you, how do you stay that course of what you, um, uh, it's it's like this interesting leadership dilemma because you want to have your own vision as a leader, but if the vision is like accommodating whatever's happening, do you lose your way? What where do you go to kind of your sounding? That's board? such a great 
follow-up because in fact you can't just accommodate you can't just respond that's just a well of loneliness you know you have <laughs> to have a sense of direction and you have to i think have a sense of mission who are we what's our role on campus what are, what are we able to contribute when we're at our best and so i'm always moving on multiple levels here i i first think a lot about my colleagues in my unit who are they? Where are they at their best? How do I get them into situations and, and uh, leading projects where they're really able to shine? And then also, I'm always thinking externally about who else on campus is moving in similar spheres and how do we collaborate without getting in each other's backyards? But it is, it's an interesting tension between individualism and higher ed and collectivism. I mean, a lot of the work that we do, as I said before, is service oriented. We're here to help our instructors be absolutely excellent teachers. Um, but there's also a way where I've been very conscientious about building the profile of my unit, you know, because we, mm. when funding comes up and people are, you know, in these days when um, everybody's yeah. very budget conscious, you, I really want the broader Cornell community to see the value added of our work, that we're not just quote unquote nice people, but that we bring expertise um, yeah. and we, and we uh, help accelerate their success in important ways important and unique ways. We do things that, for example, department chairs or associate deans can't do um, because yeah. we do we work in a realm that's developmental and confidential. And those mm -hmm. are um, summative and performative in very different ways, uh, you know, so. Yes. Tell me, for instance, um, what's maybe, I know you've probably done countless um, kinds of ways of showing or measuring the impact of the center and the value of it to Cornell, but are there a couple that stand out uh, that you have found where these were really good strategically and meaningful to show our impact? You know, of course, the, a lot of discussion is about like, uh, it's not anymore about attendance rosters at you know, workshops, it has to be more than that, but it's very hard to measure impact on student learning from something like a workshop or a series of workshops. So anything that stands out is like, this is something I think that really helped us understand more of our impact and helped maybe the administration recognize it. Mm -hmm. Well, I um, one of the things that's changed markedly over my time in higher ed has been our approach to assessment and evaluation. So this is a wonderful area to talk about growth and change over time. We're so much more alert to the importance of assessment in informing the work as it unfolds, not just retrospectively. So mm. we still take time to register people and, um, and I find it really useful to track uh, at an aggregate level what schools and colleges are we most in contact with and yeah. who are we never in contact with? That's yes. the level at which I'm, I really yeah. like that kind of information. But um, yeah. one thing that has remained the same is faculty vote with their feet. And there's nothing more persuasive to my provost than unsolicited positive feedback about my unit from faculty. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's that word of mouth thing. And um, in the pandemic, we were like everybody struggling to keep our own heads above the water. We were the, sort of the classic. We were like reading a week ahead of the class, you know. Oh, yeah. And, Building the plane yeah. as you fly kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, we're not an online uh, team. No. We've, we've done some yeah. online. We've done some really successful moves. But that's a very different approach than all of a sudden 
everybody moving <laughs> to an online environment. So yeah. um, for our colleagues, our faculty colleagues to take a moment and just send an email to the provost has been exceptional. So that's mm -hmm. the number one thing. I'm always mm -hmm. looking at that. And then the second thing I mm -hmm. look at is who's my boss and what matters to them? Mm -hmm. uh, because different provosts um, and different, um, you know, uh, presidents have different uh, different priorities and so mm -hmm. my goal is always i think my job is to keep my eye on those priorities so that my team is able to do the adjustments so that we're um assessing and in a way that feels authentic to the larger institutional goals and initiatives mm. what's an example or two of priorities that you've seen that have been different let's say from different people in leadership where you've been in a center? Um, well, uh, here's, a, here's a really current thing. We're working okay. on this right now. This past year, we had a number of very good uh, faculty members, I mean, really excellent teachers, spend an enormous amount of time and effort making videos. Mm. And of course, the temptation now is to just replay all those videos. They've got this treasure trove of, you know, collected wisdom or however you want to frame it. And one of the one of the recurrent themes in our student evaluations of teaching was, please God save me from having to watch an hour video and then hear the same thing in an hour lecture because it's mind blowingly boring and inappropriate, ineffective use of time. Yeah. So right now the 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 the, I think the senior academic leaders are really trying to find ways to not have all that work be for naught. We, we have to bring it forward, but our position is we have to do it judiciously. You can't mm -hmm. run the same videos, but you need to edit them down. And, you know, for example, there may be key concepts and you edit an hour lecture down to three different videos that each cover yeah. a concept, no more than 10 minutes each. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of place where it's not so much uh, opposing views as uh, coming to consensus about what best practices are here. And it's also, of course, research-driven, evidence-driven. Yeah, I, because I, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, I'm thinking, of course, my own institution, you know, something that would be of value to our president is some external recognition. You know, people, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know if you were, saw this, um, there was a, an activity um, that the center, um, two centers joined together, and I, I'm afraid to say the names because I'm going to forget right now, um, where they did a Rubik's Cube activity. It was picked up in the Wall Street Journal, um, where it was, it was basically to help faculty appreciate what it is to be new at learning something, because they a lot of times take their own discipline for granted. So the activity was the faculty had so much time to learn how to do the Rubik's Cube. And of course, some of them just said, forget it. I'm never going to learn it. And some of them persisted. Some of them watched tons of video and they finally learned how to do the Rubik's Cube as sort of a metaphor for learning. And the story got picked up by the Wall Street Journal. And um, it was the center director, I better figure this out before the end of this podcast. Um, I spoke to him about it and he said he actually submits a lot to their media relations to try to get more recognition of faculty development because parents and even faculty don't necessarily know that that's a, something you should look for in a college is a strong center. 
Um, we're going to Google this right now, aren't we? We have to I have to know this. Yes, I, I just did the same thing. Isn't this beautiful? I love social media. <laughs> did oh, you find it? Furman and Dennison. You there know. you go, Furman and Dennison. Absolutely. Great project. But so for them, it was like, uh, you know, this is something that will create um, this goodwill from the president. Um, so what are what are some things like for you that you've seen like this is the kind of thing that really helps center the center um, on campus? Well, um, I'm always a big fan of keeping a very close eye on what um, the key institutional initiatives are at the institution that I'm at at that time. And so uh, when I was at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, student retention and graduation rates were the key thing. And so that's okay. what my unit really doubled down on is how can we help faculty incorporate as many strategies as possible for student success. Here at Cornell, um, when I got here, I uh, we were uh, obviously beginning to launch some diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And I sort of uh, alluded to doing a course teaching and learning in the diverse classroom. And I was in a meeting with some senior academic leaders. And I said, you know, in, in th this is literally my first couple of weeks here. And I said, uh, you know, I, I could imagine us doing something like this. And our president, uh, President Martha Pollack, who is just uh, astoundingly mm as a leader, heard it and said, okay, for the fall. And I'm like, it's August. There's no way <laughs> I can have this up and running by the fall. And so we did a little negotiating. That was a tension point was like, okay, first request from um, some uh, a president who I really want to respond to. It's a, it's a, I love the active, uh, you know, sort of complete uh, support she was gonna give the idea. So we, we sort of negotiated, we got it up and running for the spring semester. So we had a fall to develop the course. Okay. Um, that was sort of feeding many birds with one bowl is how I like to frame it. It, mm. it like a really important signature program for my new unit. We were, uh, I should say, um, I'm the founding director of a new unit. There was a Center mm -hmm. for Teaching Excellence here for many years with okay. two people. And then there was another unit on academic technologies, also a terrific group of people. We merged those two and I came in as the founding executive director. And okay. uh, so much of my uh, first year was trying to establish uh, common practices, core values, shared mission, and the uh, teaching and learning in the diverse classroom course became a MOOC on edX. And mm. it was actually a fantastic um, uh, team opportunity because we could never have done it with just one side or the other. We needed folks from across every aspect um, of our uh, unit, new unit, to really make this uh, the best experience possible. It's what I call cross-functional teams. So yeah. I have people from both um, what had originally been two different units working together. They got a chance to hear each other talk out loud. They got to share values. They saw um, how sophisticated and expert each other was. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and the contributions consequently were just really off the hook. I, I think that's, um... That's a beautiful example of um, kind of where you talked about your yourself as like a team builder and um, the really exciting and dynamic aspect of being in a center is that being able to pull together 
so many different people and um there's no question that the results could not be achieved you know without all these different perspectives it's absolutely everyone feels that you know um let's talk oh sorry go ahead I just want to say, Lord, that I'm I'm in sort of what I would call sort of one of the mega centers, you okay. know. Yes. University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, um, Matt Kaplan's group there, uh, Jenny Franklin's group at Yale. We're all very big centers, but yeah. the principle holds true. If you're if back when I was at Wayne State, which was a very small center, and at University of Michigan, and I'm sorry, University of Massachusetts, Mass. mm -hmm. our very small center, seven eight people at the most at any one time, the team that you were building was across the faculty, and so uh, one of the things I learned from watching Mary Dean so closely over the years was she has impeccable skills at creating relationships, and so mm -hmm. she had a sort of a working kitchen cabinet all the time you know and it, it sort of ebbed and flowed but that was uh, the role i think a signature role of any really good director at a smaller institution is building out that team if you will without it quite a, a formally being a team yeah i know i've experienced that i mean obviously we're um a large university uh, you know cuny but hunter college is, is large i mean we have twenty-five thousand students but we have no center, really. We have um, uh, sort of an online teaching director and a couple of faculty who come together. But um, so even on like, let's say severely underfunded centers in large institutions, uh, we have that, um, that energy of doing projects across lots of different departments, lots of different schools, and so no matter what setting you're in, um, there are these wonderful um, opportunities. I think when you really have that openness of bringing people together, um, faculty really love it. It's wonderful to be able to connect with each other. It, it is Dr. Lou Ludwig at Denison, if you want to go back and look at that. I will put the link to a Wall Street Journal article in the, in the podcast notes. Um, tell me a little about the pandemic. Um, you know, as you said before, it's not a, an online kind of institution. People are sending their kids to Cornell for like the experience of being with a professor. Um, so, you know, I know you've managed it and all of that. Now that we're in this sort of about to begin a new academic year, because we're talking together here July of uh, 2021. How do you feel um, it's changed, perhaps, um, the way faculty development will continue? Will it be situations like this, like faculty have said, listen, I recorded like 100 hours and I'm going to use it and I don't want to come in? Or what, what kind of um, tensions are you seeing or opportunities for um, a focus on teaching in, a, in an institution where there's such high pressure, you know, on publication for faculty. So um, one of the things that persists was pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and I think it's going to be true into the future, is relationships. You know, our, um, one of the things I have enormous faith in is 99.999% um, of my colleagues in the faculty here care enormously about the success of their students. It's part of what keeps them at Cornell. There's a very, very strong climate and, and culture of faculty-student interaction. Yeah. 
I think that's going to absolutely shape how we go forward, continue to shape how we go forward. So what was so astonishing during the pandemic was realizing how bespoke the opportunities on campus were but you know we just when we were trying to figure out how to take stuff online it was like well you know here's an undergrad who's you know um had their eyes set on this project with this faculty member in this country how do we possibly take that unique experience and put it up online it's just wow. uh it's it's it just really took a lot of of effort on a lot of people's thoughts wow. so figure out how we continue to have that, uh, as you mentioned before, Laura, one of the key motifs of a Cornell undergraduate and I think graduate education is this really um, significant and authentic relationship with the faculty who are leaders in their fields. So how do we keep that while also figuring out how to use digital learning uh, to um, uh, expedite or accelerate success in other ways? And um, so one of the things that has changed, I think it's going to stay different for going forward is scale and speed of change. You mm. know, we just had a, we had a moment um, 18 months ago where everybody literally had to drop what they were doing and figure out how to teach. And all. really, as you were mentioning before, from mm. a perspective, for many of our mm. faculty, um, <laughs> I, I used to, I described some of my colleagues as still um, suspicious of rotary telephones. You know, <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Really, Luddites. Really, they're really, it's all about the seminar and the dialogue and the, yeah. you know, the office hour. And so, mm -hmm. uh, but that will, you know, I think there was a, a, a sort of a across the board wake up call that we have to embrace uh, media and uh, social media and, and these other platforms in a, in a real and significant way. Our faculty understand our students really benefited from that and, and will want more of that. So the other thing I think is uh, you mentioned with the Rubrics Cube example, mm. remembering what it's like to be a novice learner was very powerful for a lot of the folks on campus. It was, um, I think, humbling and um, and helped them um, be more empathetic. I don't think that's going to go away. I, I think for many of our folks, that was a I think a transformative experience. In terms of um, the work that the center will be doing, you know, because people became so reliant on the centers, like, what do we do? And now people are like, oh my gosh, we're back. But do you, do you see it continuing to keep faculty a little, like maybe those, those departments, I know for us that we never see at events, do you feel like it will be like a new era of, appreciation and involvement or something for centers now? I, I really do. I, mm -hmm. I, I think for um, this, you know, no matter what institutional type or size you're at, there was a relationship, um, a sort of a uh, forged in the fire, if you will. Yeah. If, if it went at all well, I think that um, people will continue to remember the, that help that they received and also problem solving. And so one of the things that my team did, which uh, we, we probably would have done anyway, but what we accelerated and more quickly implemented things like Gradescope, which is a platform for, you were, you were talking earlier, Laura, about large lecture settings and, and yeah. how will, will that be reshaped? So things like Gradescope, which, um, you know, uh, a lot of instructional teams love it because it makes grading so much more, uh, makes it quicker, but it also it's fairer because if you discover a discrepancy, 
in one uh, question, you can retrospectively change the grading of all of those questions. And so mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a, a, a perception of fairness that's very important in those moments. But my driver wasn't that. It wasn't, it was about the chance it gives instructional teams more opportunities to give more feedback. They just have more bandwidth because the grading process isn't so laborious. So we know from best practices that giving, particularly in those gateway courses, the more feed, regular feedback students get at a, at a formative level, the better prepared they'll be for those summative tests. So yeah. I loved Gradescope because I thought this is perfect. More opportunity to give smaller, you know, um, less significant grades uh, so that people can get a better sense of their progress. Those yeah. are the kinds of innovations that we accelerated. We also, you know, um, did some other things that were um, oriented towards small group feedback and peer feedback. Mm. Um, and I don't think those will ever go away. They've proven really to be really uh, have a lot of utility. So. Yeah, absolutely. Or even, you know, a lot of people got really into um, hypothesis at Hunter, you know, things that we, yeah, you know, just sending out a document. Now it's like, why didn't we make it interactive? It's so, makes so much sense. And I, I had a moment where I, I wasn't sure if I should be advertising platforms. So I was like, oh, oh yeah, no, 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 I think it's fine. I mean, edit it out. Yeah, the so. only people who listen are going to be overly sounder directors. They've heard of all these tools, <laughs> but there is such a huge amount of uh, growth in the ed tech industries. Um, and I think it's great because it, it can, they are very responsive and involved to the things that we need them to do. Um, so, in terms of like, as you look ahead, um, so this is 2021, you know, like longer term, um, if, if you were coming in um, to a center and um, kind of looking long range, what would be maybe some of the things that you would want to be thinking about like trends or, um, kind of directions that you think um, are going to be very important over the next 10 years. And I, as we're wrapping up, we're thinking ahead, like maybe the next 10 years or so. And for, for those of us who work in faculty development roles at centers, what do you think are some of the trends or things that we might um, be um, thinking about um, going forward beyond this moment of sort of online teaching and the pandemic, um, looking at a little further ahead. Sure. So uh, you had already mentioned, of course, number one, I think, is uh, social justice and diversity and inclusion. And I, I think those um, have always been meaningful, but they're going to be increasingly more important. And even um, in the recent articles in the Inside Higher Ed and the Chronicle of Higher Ed around uh, candidates for tenure who uh, experience bias um, and it uh, the shift in how that's being um, uh, talked about on campuses and who's talking about it and in, in the manner in which they're talking about it they're big seismic shifts so I think that's going to continue to be really interesting and I have to say even as someone who's you know paid attention to as a white man paying attention to race and racism in, in US culture for a number of decades, the past year was a huge wake up call, you know, um, both in terms of my own, you know, expanding and deepening my own knowledge, but also my 
my actions, my behaviors. And so mm -hmm. I think we're going to continue to see lots of opportunities for self-reflection, for conducting ourselves as better as allies and, um, and, and creating a, a, a much different and far more welcoming climate for students and for faculty colleagues. So the second thing I think is here to, is the future is uh, digital media. And mm -hmm. um, there's this new crop of, of positions in higher ed emerging. You know, I kept my eye on the diversity, equity, inclusion, vice provost or vice president yeah. positions. That was a big move. Um, and we could talk about that another time about how that does or doesn't lead to systemic change. But now there's this new role called digital learning officer. And I think we're beyond the point of ever being able to talk about teaching and technology as separate endeavors. And on many institutions, these are still separate silos reporting to different vice presidents. And that is going to have to change. Um, mm -hmm. We're uh, one of the reasons that I came to Cornell was that uh, it was the opportunity to help create what I think of as a learning or teaching commons, where those streams really came come together. And so regardless of what institution you're at, I think that's going to clearly be even more pressing post-pandemic. The third thing, and I don't really know where to go with this, although it's yeah. on, my, on my mind, is sustainability and global mm -hmm. climate. I think we uh, in higher ed, uh, you know, there's certainly, we have colleagues in disciplines where this is their expertise and their research um, and their activism. But I think um, we in faculty development would be well served to begin talking at least internally to each other about how we support these initiatives in the teaching and learning environment on campus, whether it's through, you know, engaged programs. Many campuses have, you know, um, lots of programs that sort of address pieces of this, but thinking about it more systematically and from a faculty development perspective, I think is urgent. Um, mm. That's, those are the things that are on my mind. Those are really big. Those are some big things on your mind, Matt. Those are those are huge um, and also really exciting because it just shows that um, it's a moving train. You know, there's never, we're never going to say, well, we know how to do this. And, you know, this is, we're, we're all set here in, in as um, student bodies shift the, the workplace. Um, so many dynamics um, are kind of come together in a, in, in, in a higher ed setting. And then even more so from someone sitting you know, outside of their own their own courses, their own research, but seeing really the whole system of teaching and learning. But Laura, you're you're one of my favorite examples today because this <laughs> podcast is the future. You know how we communicate, how we share knowledge. You know when I started in the field, uh, the Pod Conference, of Professional Organization Development Network in Higher Ed was tiny. We were a couple hundred people, and so you could pretty much by the end of a of a four day conference. You could you could know people by name, yeah. um, and um, and it was still a very uh, sort of guild, you know, where there was a lot of mentoring and a lot of yeah. really uh, d deep deep and sustained personal relationships with people. But I think using media, social media, in these kinds of really uh, directed ways is is really where we're going to 
be able to continue to have some of those elements of what that culture felt like in the 90s when the when pod in the 80s and 90s when pod was first created um but these are the these this is how it will go forward are these opportunities to so that's really very nice to hear and you know as i mentioned um to you in my email you know i have been a faculty fellow for some time at, at associated with our center and it's something I would love to do more work with maybe in my next chapter and I thought gee you know how do I access people um and there's a lot of uh, just tons of resources on teaching in higher ed a lot of great podcasts as well but I thought but these aren't actually the center people that are getting to talk uh, to each other and I thought this is gonna be like completely niche, but it will be a great learning experience for me to develop how do you do podcasts and I'll get a chance to learn so much from all of you who have been so nice to spend time being interviewed. And I was so gratified because on the pod network listserv, a few people said that they have been listening and they really enjoy hearing there's something about the voice. Um, I got into, I was never someone who listened to podcasts, but during the pandemic, probably like a lot of people, I started listening to a couple and I listened to like trash, you know, like crime stuff, you know, not higher ed related. Um, and I just found it like, it was like listening to, talking to a friend on a phone almost. There's something very different. And maybe because we're saturated with the Zoom and the visual and having to sit somewhere, you can just you're taking your walk and you're listening. So, um, and I think that access to people, it's more intimate somehow than even seeing someone present at a conference. Um, you know, because you probably presented so many times, but how many people get to really go up and talk to you and really hear from you, hear your voice? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And there was some research this past year, and I'm, I'm going to have to get you the citation, but it was... Okay. Sort of, as we were all sort of in the deep end of the pool with Zoom, there was an article, I think, in the Chronicle of Higher Ed that talked about the importance of sometimes just having a phone call. They yeah. can read people's emotions better in a phone call than in a in a Zoom call. And I immediately sent it to all of my friends who are psychotherapists <laughs> because that because that's of course the the point of the realm is trying to listen for that nuance. So. But yeah. I do um, like one of the things I love about your work with the podcast, but also with your colleagues on on the campus at Hunter is this um, idea of of sort of innovative collaborations, finding finding real connectivity and in, in sort of less expected kinds of ways. And so one of the things that I've been really, really privileged to have at Cornell, and I know this is really arrogant to say, yeah. but I actually have a media team. And yeah. um, that's so rare. It's so impossible. But for folks who are listening, I really say go find your faculty colleagues um, and staff colleagues who have those skill sets and interests because I think that's the future. You know, um, we, these uh, things that are, uh, just like we're giving advice to faculty about brief, quick videos that are topic specific. I think we're right now on our website, as are many campuses doing, yeah. focus on faculty, three minute interviews of faculty just talking about something great that worked in their classroom over the pandemic. And that's what people, uh, that's a, a really powerful way in. and. There's such a, a dialogue in our heads in higher ed that it has to be 
data-driven and evidence-driven and it has to be well-written and it has to be juried and peer-reviewed and but sometimes it just doesn't it just has to be <laughs> genuine and authentic and in the, in the right thing at the right moment that's beautiful and um i think being being available and um nimble is i think getting more important sometimes because uh i know um th this this is a really interesting time to be in higher ed and um, we all of us I know who are listening really, really appreciated hearing your story and some of your um, thoughts and it's making me think too and i'll just end here, you know what is your. Um, that inner motivator that driver you know so matt talked about creating that team or a sense of community drives it's a great chance to stop and reflect, you know, what really drives you? Who are you uniquely? And what do you bring to those um, opportunities you have to shape what happens on your campus? So thank you so much, Matt. It was great, great speaking with you. Enjoy the, the rest of summer. And I hope to get to meet you um, at a pod conference in the future. I sure hope so, Laura. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for the in invitation, and I'm, I'm delighted to have spent this time together. Thanks, Thanks so much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.